0: Um, We are in a series uh, that that I've named Habitat, and if you, uh, I'll give you a, if you weren't with us last week, I'll give you just a real um, brief recap from where we were uh, last week. If you look up Habitat in a dictionary, uh, you'll read a definition that goes something like this. A habitat is uh, a place that is natural for the vibrancy and growth of an organism. And we talked about how uh, we want to grow individually. We want to grow as a church and not just uh, like in a numerical sense, but we want to grow and mature and become more like Christ. And so last week we considered how that definition of a habitat reframes what salvation is. If you grew up in church, um, you might have a certain image or uh, definition of salvation. If if you're just kind of dipping a toe in the water and thinking about church, you might already have an idea formed in your head of some preacher talking about getting saved. Well, biblically, salvation is, <clears throat> is not just this uh, one-time event. It's not just a decision that we make and check it off. Salvation is a life of vibrancy and growth. And I mentioned last week, it's, that doesn't mean it's a problem-free life. Uh, It's not necessarily an easy life, but it's a life worth living. It's the kind of life that the Bible describes as a treasure buried in a field, and when it's found, it's worth selling all you have to buy that field. It's worth it. And salvation is not heaven out there somewhere after you die, but it's a, a place where heaven and earth meet, and that's the spiritual habitat that we're talking about. It's right here um, where we can experience life to its fullest, a life, uh, a life of vibrancy and growth. The spiritual habitat that we're talking about is the answer to the question that if you were to live tomorrow and for a long time after that, would you like to live life to the fullest? And if your answer is yes, then this habitat is, uh, is a description, is a, is a place for you to experience that. And so by God's grace, we accept his invitation into a process of growth. And I emphasize process uh, because we all are on this journey and all have a ways to go. But it's a process of growth that deepens our experience in this habitat where heaven and earth meet here in our everyday ordinary lives. So growth playing a key role, an ongoing role, Uh, I introduced last week an acronym for growth and i hope to broaden our understanding of salvation as a lifestyle and to better imagine the habitat that we are to live in here and now and so i'm going to put in the chat feature um <clears throat> that let's see here this is the habitat uh, the the growth acronym and I'll briefly uh, describe each of these, although today we're gonna lean into the first one, G that grounded in God's narrative and then in the subsequent weeks, the others. Uh, but what we're gonna look at today is a healthy habitat begins with a healthy narrative. And we'll look at um, what, what narrative do you pattern your life after? What narrative really shapes your life, the way you view yourself and the way you interact with others in the world? Uh, next week, uh, rooted in love, I want uh, to help you discern what it is you desire. Like what's your soul truly long for, and how what you love shapes your life. Uh, the O, the orchard of community, uh, the people closest to you play a significant role in the health of your habitat. Um, this is a really big deal, especially uh, at, at Bay Marin. We believe that relationships um, are. Vital. We we do this together. Uh, the W is, um, is the a gardener knows the value of trimming away the dead and the dying in order to make room for new growth. The W stands for <clears throat> winters of pruning, um, and how even even those difficult times in our life contribute to um, what it what it means to actually experience fullness in life, <clears throat> because the two may seem like they are intention, but they actually go together. Um, T, the trellis of practices, healthy, balanced growth, carries us up and out. Um, the trellis is a framework of habits that guides our growth up to God and out for the sake of others, um, so we can be as ambassadors. And then H, um, are, uh, the proper trellis of habits lead us to produce a harvest. That's what the H stands for, a harvest of good works that advance um, God and his kingdom. So this uh, grounded in God's story, I want us to consider uh, what the story of God is and how this narrative of God can, can shape um, how important it is for shaping us to live a, a full and vibrant life. Um, I want to begin and I want to invite you to belly up to your computer and uh, use the, get familiar with the chat feature and uh, we will, uh, what I want to do is I want to give you an opening line to a famous story. And you tell me the name of the book or the movie. All right. So I'll give you a, 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 the first line. I'll read one uh, the, the, right now. And you just type as quick as you can. Now, if you were with us for Christmas Eve, we already know that Susanna Beck is the fastest typer in the world. Um, she uh, she ran away with the competition on Christmas Eve, <laughs> but uh, let's let's uh, do our best here. So the uh, the first opening line that I want to mention to you is, "It was the worst of times, it was the best of times." Nice, way to go, Jamie. Tale of Two Cities. Oh, Angela Barker, you're telling us who wrote it. Thank you. Bonus points for that. Yeah. Tale of, a tale of two cities. Um, Okay, here's a super easy one. It is a, actually, it is a requirement to live in Marin. Um, If you cannot answer this, you need to look for another place maybe to live, but um, Opening line, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Yes. Way to go, Mary Beth, you may stay, you are welcome to stay in Marin. <laughs> yeah, these beginnings tell us quite a bit. Now here's, um, here's one, this is a, a longer first sentence to a story. And uh, your hint is, I bet you read this as required reading in high school, all right? Um, so here's the opening opening sentence to this story. If you really wanna hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. Nice, where to go. I think uh, that's Doug, I guess. Cat- yes, it's Catcher in the Rye. Although, thank you, Barry. Now I want to go read the Dirty Dozen and see what that is. but. Yeah. For me, the word lousy is what gave it a Holden Caulfield. That's a, that's a word that he, he uses quite a bit. And uh, oh, that's, that's Alex. Yes. Sorry. Uh, Wrong lawyer. Way to go. (laughs) Alex, good call on that. Um, All right. And uh, this is the last one. Uh, Feel free to chime in on this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ding, 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 ding. Yes, the Bible, Genesis. It's the opening line. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, uh, which means beginnings, the story begins with God creating the perfect habitat for his most prized creation, humankind. And it was that original habitat, the ideal and perfect setting in which God placed Adam and Eve But those inhabitants of that habitat became marred when they sought to create a different habitat that they thought would be better. And generation after generation since, we continue to settle for lesser unhealthy habitats. But God has never stopped inviting us back to the beginning. To that ancient habitat that is exactly what we need today, that ancient habitat is where you will find heaven breaking through and touching earth even in the normal every day of your life. In the beginning, God. Now, just that opening sentence tells us so much about the story. To begin with, the story does not start with me or my needs. Um, The story of the Bible does not start with my sin, my shortcomings, my mistakes, my imperfections. The story does not begin with um, God urging me, boy, if you could just hang on until you get to heaven. No, the story starts with the perfect intention of God to have a people who love Him and cooperatively work with Him for the sake of others and the good of His created world. I want us to understand is that it, the reason I, I put God's narrative in the G of, of groundedness is um, uh, kind of in this. Uh, to be grounded uh, you may know this, but the, the word "human" comes from the Latin word "humus," meaning dirt. So our story begins. our story is grounded with God breathing into us as dirt, giving us life and animating our soul. We read about that in Genesis chapter 2. So to say um, at the very least, uh, we quite literally come from humble beginnings. Um, It's the word that we get humble from, humus, human, humble. All of those are tied together. And your growth journey begins there with humility. Now, I will note that you may feel like your life has been shaped by a humiliating beginning rather than a humble beginning, but what I want us to see this morning is God God is in the business of rewriting narratives. So I want us to, um, as Jesus is our example, Jesus began his earthly journey very humbly, not as a Proud king, but as a humble baby. And Philippians 2 says this about the humility, the humus, the groundedness of Jesus. Says this: do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus So we see that to know God's narrative, we learn from Jesus who lived the fullest life imaginable. Have you ever thought about that Jesus lived the fullest life imaginable. He is our example for grounding ourselves in the story that God continues to author here and now. While while on earth, Jesus lived the most compelling interesting life imaginable. His life, uh, life in the kingdom as the Son of God, is our model for eternal life. And I don't mean that someday when we die life as much as the fullness, the habitat of salvation life right now. He is our model for life. Jesus lived that compelling and interesting life You might be thinking, well, yeah, of course he lived it because he was Jesus. Um, But more than that, um, he lived the most compelling and interesting life because everything he thought and did was based on the true narrative of his father's actions in the world. Our narratives form the life and the health of the habitat that we live. Jesus chose to daily submit to the will of his father, to the story that his father was writing. In John 14, uh, verses uh, 6 through 10, this is a a chunk of scripture. It's really, um, it's beautifully given to us in John's gospel. And I'm going to put it in the the chat for everyone if you want to read along with me. Um, And this tells us uh, so much about how we can get to know God and how Jesus helps us to know God and what that true narrative is. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So do you get what Jesus is saying there? He's like, you've been, he's talking to his, his some friends of his, close friends, his apprentices, his disciples. They've been walking with him and he's saying to them, if you know me, then you know my father. And Philip said, and this is comforting to me because I'm not the only slow one, okay? Philip says, Lord, Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. The best way for you and I to know God and to know his story is to observe Jesus, his son. Grounding ourselves in God's story is aided as we develop a habit of knowing the life of Jesus. Now, as I said, the story we listen to, the story we believe and enter Shapes our imagination and our behavior, so let me uh, mention a few things that um, some we've I mentioned that we want to be grounded in god's narrative, but there are other narratives that have um been written that you have read that you have entered into that may be different than god's narrative and I'll mention this one to begin with. Uh, because we're all shaped by it to one degree or another, and that is a family narrative. In fact, I I would venture to guess that family is quite possibly the strongest shaper of our narrative. Uh, Family narratives shape everything from the way you look at yourself, maybe a family narrative that you heard growing up was men don't cry, or maybe a family narrative that um, you saw lived out was we don't discuss our problems. Or maybe a family narrative that was uh, played over and over in your home was the loudest voice wins an argument. Again, there's probably not a stronger narrative than family when it comes to shaping our identity and character. And not just character like who we are, but think of it again as a story the character we will play in future stories. Now, again, God is in the business of rewriting narratives. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But uh, the beginning of family narratives um, often answer some big and foundational questions of who you are and why you're here and why you are valuable. Um, and uh, so let's, let's take this, this subject of value. I bet you have memories of family stories when you were younger, or maybe even recently, that led you to believe that you were valuable, or, or not. (laughs) Um, You no doubt encountered an untold number of situations that directly or indirectly said, you belong here. Or, you belong here if, dot, dot, dot. And what I want you to know is God's narrative invites you into a story where you are loved unconditionally. You are welcomed by and belong with God. This is the narrative that we see all throughout scripture. And let me just kind of rattle off a bunch of examples of you are valuable to God. You are loved by God. Um, you belong with God. Romans 8, we read this, this rhetorical question, can anything separate us from the love of God? And Paul goes on to resoundingly say, no, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Psalm 139 says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. First John 3 begins with, with this, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Proverbs 3, Solomon writes, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. So even that is that helps us understand the narrative um, that we are loved even through a time of being disciplined. Um, Some of the previous verses I read remind us that we are loved even when we are far less than perfect. Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 19. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. So again, this life that we enter into, uh, this life of fullness, it's not guaranteed that it's easy, but it's worth it. This passage in Lamentations 3 is saying it's going to be difficult at times, but don't doubt. When you're walking in God's narrative, don't doubt that even when it's difficult, that God still loves you. You have hope because the Lord's great love, because of the Lord's great love, you're not consumed. His compassions never fail. So we have a family narrative um, that maybe shaped us, and God invites us into his narrative. Um, There are other narratives that shape us. There's uh, cultural narratives um, how has culture shaped your idea of success, for example? Um, success is probably defined in terms of achievement. Um, how does that compare to God's narrative? God, how, would, how would God define achievement? How would he define success? Could it be that God defines achievement as simple obedience? Uh, When we enter into a life of obedience, of patterning our life after him, he sees that as successful. Um, What's the cultural narrative when it comes to freedoms? What does God's narrative have to say about our freedoms? Um, Family narratives, cultural narratives, there's also religious narratives, and I I mean this um, different from God's narratives. In other words, there are religious narratives that, that maybe are based upon man's idea of how to earn God's favor. And they're couched maybe in, in churchy terms, but it's not God's story. Uh, what has religion taught you about what is important? You know, in most religious narratives, uh, something like heaven is the goal. But when we allow God's narrative to grow us and to shape us, we recognize that heaven is not the goal, it's just a destination. The goal, what's really important, is growing and being transformed into Christ's likeness. It's, it's going back to that to that ancient garden that God originally, in the beginning, God created. And it's where we enter into a cooperative friendship with God, And we join him and what he is up to on the earth. Um, What is an overly religious narrative communicated to you about belonging? It probably had to do with uniformity. Uh, Maybe you heard in the church of your upbringing, if you believe all the same things we believe and if you think and act the same way we do, then you belong. You are welcome here, but not until you agree to these terms what does God say about belonging? We read some of those passages already. So by these examples, I hope you're beginning to see that narratives matter. On January 6th, just a few days ago, we observed a variety of people all responding to and living out a narrative that they believed to be true. The actions of January 6th did not happen in a vacuum. It was the natural outcome of narratives. And regardless of how you interpreted the events of January 6th, a narrative shaped your response to what you witnessed. That's the power of narrative. The power of a story to impact your thoughts and behavior, though, um, is not dependent upon truth. A false narrative and a true narrative, both are very powerful. That's why it's very important that we align ourselves with what is good and true. That's why knowing and entering into God's narrative matters. Healthy habitats are grounded in God's narrative. God's narrative. Did you know that in God's story, that simply being yourself Captures the attention of God. God pursued Adam in the garden, asking, Adam, where are you? God knew where Adam was hiding, of course, but God posed the question to give Adam an opportunity to simply confess to his current position in life. It's almost like he was saying, Adam, I'm giving you an opportunity to say this. Honestly, God, I'm, I'm ashamed. I'm hiding. I'm guilty. But we can do that safely because the narrative of God is that he meets us where we are, not where we think we should be or where we want others to think we are or where we want to end up. Where you are, as you are, God comes to meet with you. We see this at the beginning of the story in Genesis 3, and it continues on throughout. Belonging in a religious narrative may require a lot of hoop jumping, but God meets us in our humble Humous confession of this is honestly where I am Jesus modeled it in the New Testament one example Zacchaeus a despised outcast who climbed a tree to catch a fresh glimpse of Jesus and Zacchaeus made no attempt to hide the fact that he was living a very selfish narrative and yet Jesus ended up entering his home and sharing a meal with him and inviting him into a completely new narrative the woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus looked at her and said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Enter into a new narrative. The rich young ruler is a story maybe you're familiar with. Jesus offered a life to a young man, a life that was greater and more fulfilling than the one he was currently living. But in that story, the young man chose to remain in his own narrative rather than humbly entering into God's narrative. From the life of Jesus, we learn that Father God always sees you and recognizes you where you are, as you are, and he creates a space for you to be honest about it, and that's where you enter into God's narrative. That's where you begin to embody a new story. See, becoming a Christian is much like adopting a new life story. To be converted is to switch narratives. And I just wanna say this uh, briefly uh, before we enter into a time of communion. Um, To think about switching narratives, um, it is a a process into that. Uh, Just as growth comes as um, a process. Again, we're not growing in order to prove our worth to God. We are growing because we want to live the fullest life imaginable. And that life is lived according to God's narrative. And once you find this life, as we have said, it's worth selling everything you have to obtain it. As we think specifically about communion, I didn't mention this at the beginning of the service, but hopefully you'll have something, uh, bread and and juice that you can um, gather around this virtual table. But there's one other thing about stories that I want to mention. And that is that a good ending to a story isn't always safe or nice. A good ending to a story though, brings the story to fullness. This reminds me of Jesus' final words on the cross. It is finished. That chapter in his story, um, I wouldn't say was safe. It sure didn't look nice. But it, it is a picture of fulfillment. Jesus, by saying it is finished, he wasn't just giving up. He was saying, I have lived life and now it is fulfilled, complete fulfillment. It still shocks me to think that sacrifice and brokenness are necessary scenes in a story with good endings, a story that ends in fullness. I know you want a good ending to your story, I do too. And when we take communion, we do this every week, we take the bread and the cup We're remembering the story of Jesus, and by doing this, we enter into the story again. Symbolically, we are saying that we want to embody that same story. We will sacrifice, and we will give ourselves away, not to earn God's favor, but simply to offer ourselves for the good of others, which is central to a fulfilling life. So be still for just a moment and reflect on the meaning of these two symbols of Christ's body represented by this blood and how it was offered for you, his blood shed for your atonement. Reflect on the beauty of Christ's life, the beauty of this part of his story, which actually included death. And now partake with me. Jesus took bread, and he said, this is my body offered for you. Take and eat. And likewise, taking a cup. He said, this, this wine, this cup, is like my blood shed for you, inviting you into a new covenant, allowing you to enter into a new story. Let me pray and let's sing. Father, um, I thank you for good endings. And one of the things that makes death a good ending is that death is not the end. (laughs) It marks a beginning. It's one of those crazy paradoxes that we see played out over and over. death did not have the last word death will not have the last word for us, for those of us that have entered into your story. Um, I thank you for making the good life available to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.